This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Law School Show. My name is Amos Vang, and I will be your host for this episode. The Manitoba Language Rights Reference, the Bill 101 Cases, Queen and Marshall, Queen and Bernard, the Reference Regarding Minority Language Education Rights, Lovelace in Ontario, Queen and Pally, Daniels in Canada, Pekangikam First Nation and Canada, and Laksul First Nation and Canada. These are some of the most important landmark cases in Canada's constitutional history. These cases are often taught in great detail in law schools across Canada, and most law students, including myself, are very familiar with these cases. But what if I told you that there was one lawyer that served as the lead counsel in all of these cases? What if I told you that this one person greatly contributed to Canada's constitutional evolution? Well, that person, that lead counsel, is my guest for today, Professor Joseph Elliott Magnet. Professor Magnet is a professor of law at the University of Ottawa. Throughout his entire career, he has become one of Canada's most respected constitutional lawyers. After completing a Bachelor of Arts at Long Island University, Professor Magnet would complete his Bachelor of Laws at McGill University, a Master of Laws, and finally a PhD at McGill University. Professor Magnet had the amazing privilege of clerking for Chief Justice Brian Dixon at the Supreme Court of Canada and would also serve as Crown Counsel in Ottawa. Along with being a professor at the University of Ottawa, Professor Magnet is a visiting professor at numerous universities around the world. Currently, he is the General Counsel to the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples and Chief Negotiator and Lead Counsel for First Nations and Land Claims Processes. During his time as counsel, Professor Magnet has acted in over 200 constitutional cases in the Supreme Court of Canada and the Trial and Appellate Courts of Ontario, Quebec, and Manitoba. He has authored 18 books and over 100 articles on Canada's constitutional framework, including the 8th and 9th editions of the book Constitutional Law of Canada, which respectively focus on federalism and Aboriginal peoples and the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. All of this has led to Professor Magnet's election to the Royal Society of Canada in 1998. Outside of all of this, Professor Magnet also plays the viola and finds a great interest in the world of classical music. A constitutional powerhouse and an influential jurist, Professor Magnet is my guest for today. Professor, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you so much, Amos, and thank you for that uh, very warm introduction. <laughs> so let's start off from the beginning. What inspired you to go to law school, and what inspired you to become a lawyer? You know, I, 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 I remember exactly what that was. Uh, we're living through uh, some very interesting times right now with our executive leaderships, particularly in the United States. But uh, just prior to going to law school, uh, we were living through a similar time with President Nixon, 
and the Watergate scandals. Uh, there was an impeachment crisis. A special prosecutor was appointed, a Harvard law professor, Archibald Cox. And I uh, was really impressed by uh, Professor Cox and his diligence, his tenacity, uh, and his integrity um, as he uh, worked his way through getting the truth about what President Nixon had done. My inspiration really was... uh, Archibald Cox uh, and the Nixon impeachment uh, inquiry. I thought, I want to do that. <laughs> I want to do that. And uh, that, 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 that was what started it for me. Wow. So the Watergate scandal back then, that was the 70s, I believe, correct? Yeah, that's right. Wow, the 70s. So what was it like back then? <laughs> what was it like back then? Law school back in the 70s. How did law school back then in the 70s compared to law school now in 2020? Well, first of all, it was male. There were very few female professors. Uh, I don't think I had any. And um, uh, few female students. So that was the first thing. Uh, And McGill uh, was a sea of English in an overwhelming French-speaking province. So there was uh, a weird sentiment of both being part of the uh, power elite, but also of being uh, an increasing minority within its own home province. Uh, I think this was, um, you know, the school was uh, in a process of finding its identity uh, and finding its place in the province. And, you know, this leaked into the students. A uh, bilingualism program started, a bijural program started, and, uh, of course, things have transformed. And things certainly have transformed since then. You went to law school in the 70s, which was before the Charter of Rights and Freedoms were was uh, enacted, and that was 1982. So you've had a good number of years seeing a pre-charter era and a post-charter era. Were there significant immediate changes in the curriculum that you found at least after, before and after a post, uh, the charter was enacted in Canada, or were the changes a lot slower? Um, I think the changes were pretty quick. Um, uh, um, I mean, I was a constitutional law teacher uh, uh, immediately before, during, and after Uh, the proclamation of the Charter in 1982. I participated as counsel in the lead-up to the Charter. I represented uh, more people before the special joint committee that hammered out the Charter uh, than in any other council uh, in the country. And, um, you know, as a result of uh, the pressure that uh, my various clients put Um, the Charter took its shape, which was quite different than what was proposed. So, um, I was uh, quite au courant with uh, what was happening, um, and I was aware that that was producing uh, a transformation in my own thinking. Um, uh, immediately after the charter was proclaimed, um, of course, my constitutional law course was transformed because the charter was built into it and increasingly took it over until the courses were split 
uh, down the road into a federalism and a, a charter course. But immediately after the charter, uh, I started to litigate charter cases. I think I had the first one in 1983 uh, that uh, was focusing on uh, free expression for a gay man and uh, <clears throat> gay pornography and that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, yeah, it uh, it produced a dramatic change uh, right at the time. Now, I think the academy moves more slowly than the profession. So, um, you know, our syllabuses changed, uh, you know, some cases changed, but the uh, sea change in thinking, um, I think, is more in line with what you said. It was a little slower, although at the bar, it was quick. And certainly that transformation ha has led to 30, coming to 40 years of just the evolution of Canada's constitutional history. And being at the forefront of all of this has certainly given you some great opportunities after law school, you got the opportunity, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this episode, you got the opportunity to clerk for Chief Justice Brian Dixon himself. Now, for those of you who are listening or watching who are unfamiliar with the clerkship process, it is extremely difficult to land a clerkship opportunity for any of the justices at the Supreme Court of Canada. For those who do have the, fortun the, the fortunate privilege to have that opportunity, I can only imagine that the experience is really, really unique. And in your experience, Professor, what was it like clerking for Chief Justice Dixon? Uh, that was very formative uh, on me. Um, uh, you know, before I went to law school, uh, I had done uh, degrees in literature and uh, actually a PhD in literature. And I was given to speaking big words and, uh, you know, having uh, grand theories of deconstruction and all sorts of stuff. Um, and a result of that kind of thinking, and, and I carried it through law school, was, you know, I was not very precise. I didn't always care, you know, what was being said. Uh, I spoke in grand concepts, you know, that uh, were fuzzy at the edges. What I saw with Dixon uh, was this insistence on understanding exactly what was being said you know uh, i mean he would he would he would uh, put in front of me you know text of uh, counsel or text of decisions you know with a few words highlighted and say what 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 does he really mean there and you know when you look at it you thought well he doesn't really mean anything <laughs> But Dixon would not stop there. You know, well, what, you know, what is he trying to say? What is it about? So it was this, this insistence on understanding, this ability to listen, this careful listening, um, not to, you know, uh, knock somebody down, but to understand and um, to answer. So also in the answer, there was a careful attention to answering points that had been made. Uh, by counsel or by other judges who had confronted uh, similar issues, you know, and to justify. Um, and then there was, he was very interested in how his decisions were received. Um, so he was constantly asking me what people were saying and, uh, you know, what the clerks were saying. And uh, there was a little gossip network. And, and he was very interested to know if he had justified appropriately 
this was transformative for me. I, I had not been exposed to this in my graduate work or in literary studies or anything like this, or even in law school. You know, this 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 respect for what other people are saying, this insistence on understanding, this insistence on engaging in the conversation and answering the conversation, this was, you know, really something for me. Then there was the careful workmanship also that Dixon did. His, you know, many of his opinions are really, you know, masterpieces. They are carefully written. I had not seen that in Supreme Court decisions before him. We like to say that, you know, Laskin would, you know, write these grand ideas and Dixon would then explain them so that people could understand them. There was a little bit of truth in that, but Dixon was a very creative thinker himself. So for me, it was very important. I'll tell you something else. Um, I encouraged my own students, my research assistants in particular, um, to have that experience, to uh, try to clerk at the Supreme Court because it, it, for me it was wonderful and transformative. I, I encouraged them and I really supported my RAs to, uh, you know, to do that. And I'm just thrilled that more of my RAs clerked at the Supreme Court of Canada than any other law prof uh, in the country ever. Uh, I'm very proud of those, you know, I'm very proud of those people. And, um, you know, it also instilled in me a, a desire to want to make sure that whatever I could do for my students, I did do, that I left no stu stone, you know, unturned for them. And really, you know, that's, that's become increasingly important to me in my career. And many of the lessons that you've learned, as you said, Professor, from Chief Justice Dixon, has been taught to your students as well. And I'm an example of that. I have taken your course in constitutional litigation in the 2019-2020 year, and I see a lot of those lessons, uh, and I, I've learned a lot from those lessons myself, and it's, it's such an enlightening experience because we really get to see, get to look at the law in a very different sense from the, the I don't, I don't, I don't want to say the conventional law school method, but really the more common law school conventional method where, you know, we're looking at it, you know, by 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 a way that is very formalized as opposed to you know just getting straight to the point and i remember very clearly it's basically uh theory and theme uh of the case the, the, these two things i mean for the lawyers listening or watching this episode i mean by this point um man, many of you if not all of you have already known about this and, and know this very well but for law students it was it's pretty much a very important lesson that we all learn and the way how you taught it was was such an important way and, and quite it's easy to learn but hard to master and that's <laughs> of learning about the legal practice and how to litigate because that that in and of itself is what separates good lawyers from great lawyers well you know it, it, it's extremely comforting to me to hear you say that because, uh, as I was trying to explain, my students at this point in my career are everything to me. So um, that I can transmit something of value to them uh, is extremely important. I mean, you know, my the I, I, I am so proud of my students. I'm proud of you. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and and here's the way I think about it, you know. Your actions matter. I am talking to people 
and helping to develop people whose actions really matter. Their actions matter. What they say matters. Uh, they can and they will make a tremendous difference. And so I want to help them, you know, reach their potential so that, you know, each one of them will be instilled with the sense that I want to leave the earth a better place than the way I found it. I want to leave these societies that I participate in in better shape than the way I found it. You know, it's, uh, you know, those are truisms, of course, you know, and when you're young, you know, people parrot them and, uh, you know, whatever. But when you're older, you know, they're more than truisms. You know, they are a way of looking back on your life and saying, well, what, how, how did I really touch the people that, uh, you know, that I came into contact with? What, what really happened? You know, did I, did I carry it out? Or, you know, was I just out there looking out for myself and, <laughs> you know, getting through as best as I can as, you know, as all of us, you know, are, we're always exposed to that. So I think, you know, this is, you know, something that, this is a creed that teachers really need to take to heart, not just law teachers, but, you know, university teachers, high school teachers, elementary teachers. You are teaching, you are, you are interacting with very, very precious, you know, people, each and every one. And, you know, your responsibility is, you know, to bring them along and, you know, develop yourself so that you can develop others. This is, you know, really, I think it's very interesting that, uh, you know, that uh, you perceive that I got some of this from Brian Dixon. I hadn't made that connection, but, you know, I think that's certainly true. You know, Brian Dixon gave me uh, a sense of the nobility of what we were doing. I mean, yes, of course, it's the Supreme Court. Of course, it's noble. But also, you know, it was, you know, it was a noble task. And it was a task for each and every lawyer and each and every person um, and this is the way I feel about the profession. You know, it's a noble profession. You can do great things in it, or, you know, you can do even just good things in it. And, you know, if you apply yourself, you take it seriously, you know, you develop the right skills, um, you can make a difference. And in some cases, a profound difference, you know, so it's a great, it's really a great privilege. It's uh, to be part of this profession. And um, yeah, I would like to instill that in my students. And it's certainly a great privilege and a great duty that lawyers, legal professionals, everyone involved in the legal community, it, it certainly is a privilege and duty that everyone has to remember. And I've said this many times, also in previous episodes of the show, we have a duty and a privilege. We have a duty to to our clients and really to doing, as you said, Professor, great things, not just good things, but great things for the community and also for the broader general public as well. And our actions, as you said, certainly have consequences. And in your case, you've had some great, great results as well. As I stated earlier in the introduction of this episode, many of the most important constitutional landmark cases were litigated by you, and in fact, you were the lead counsel in a lot of these cases. So, as you said, lots of hard work having, having been done to get to this point, but I'm interested in one thing, and that's your first time litigating a case. Take us back to your very first experience litigating a case. What was going through your mind at the time? 
Were you nervous? Were you excited? What happened back then? I really don't remember my first case, honestly. Um, it must be one I lost. Uh, I just don't remember it. I'm really, I really don't get it. Uh, I used to be uh, nervous, however, I can tell you that. Um, and my, uh, my, my, I guess what the, the, the psychologist would say, my co- compensatory mechanisms was, and I still, I think, you know, everybody should use them, hard work, preparation, you know, uh, you know, hard work, preparation. There's, uh, you know, for a litigator, you can't over-prepare, but what, you know, what the litigator learns is to be flexible and to pivot. And, you know, so your preparation isn't that you remember your lines, you know, your preparation is that you, uh, and you'll be familiar with this, you treat it like a chess game, you know, uh, it's uncertain, you don't know what the other side is going to do, you should expect the other side to do the unexpected, and you have to look down, you know, the board. Uh, as many moves as you possibly can and prepare yourself for them and also prepare yourself to be flexible and to pivot and, you know, to have answers for uh, everything, um, you know, as much as you can. And uh, I've also learned that humor is a terrific way to deflect many arguments. Um, And, uh, you know... uh, so it's not a, not a, it's not an answer to your question, but I think it's the best I can do because I honestly do not remember my first case. Oh no, but it, it certainly answers the question well. I mean, I mean, I, I'm very sure that everyone has has a start. You know, everyone starts somewhere, and nobody makes the first time. So it's always we all start off. Like for example, when it, when I started hosting this podcast, I was also very nervous. You know, I was very nervous. This was two years ago. My my first, even though my first episode was done with a person that I knew very, very well, it's the act of recording and interviewing a person for the first time in this kind of capacity, on a podcast capacity. That is something that also takes time to be comfortable with. And over the years, I've gotten more comfortable and more comfortable with hosting more interviews and producing and editing more interviews. And this is kind of inspirational even for our new hosts that we just hired for uh, this upcoming season seven, going into season seven of the law school show. Everyone starts somewhere, whether it's podcasting, the legal profession, any profession for that matter, we all start somewhere. And oftentimes we learn a lot of lessons throughout, but especially at, at the beginning. You know, when we start at the beginning, we learn so much. We learn the ropes and then we learn how to improve ourselves based on our mistakes. And really, it's through trial by fire or a figurative fire that really makes us stronger and makes us more resilient and smarter and faster when it comes to pursuing our professional pursuits. And I, again, I think I think you actually answered my, my question perfectly well because I mean, while you may not remember your first time, you I mean you did recount a lot of what happened early on in your in your career. Yeah, uh, you know my career is uh, still going on. Um, so uh, uh, at the moment, um, I'm involved in uh, constitutional development in Africa, and uh, I've been mandated to. Um, uh, both uh, help uh, write a new constitution for one of the large countries in Africa. Wow. And um, uh, 
you know, and to reconcile, you know, some uh, problems in that country between the military and uh, some uh, freedom forces. Uh, so, um, you know, these are, it's very interesting. And, and in another African country, I also uh, represent uh, one of the uh, significant national minorities, and uh, they are trying to find a constitutional place uh, in this other country um, so that they can be secure and uh, develop. You know, these are things I could not have, it's interesting, I could not have done these things, you know, when I was a young prof. Um, I didn't have the sort of human experience uh, uh, let alone the legal expertise, but I mean, it's the human experience of uh, being able to uh, touch people, figure out what they need. You know, you're not going to get everything, but, you know, you're going to get what you need, um, and a little bit of humor uh, and stuff. These are skills that um, I think we need in some way to uh, build into um, our, law, our law school curriculum. I know that we've got all this stuff in negotiation and stuff, but um, you know these are these are rhetorical skills. These are you know human skills. These are uh, more than just uh, negotiating skills. And I wish that we could you know in some way build these into the curriculum so that uh, people would be more equipped than I was when I was a young prof or a young lawyer to uh, you know do some of this stuff that really some of this peacemaking stuff that really needs to be done, you know, in uh, some difficult uh, neighborhoods in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's this human experience that also makes a great lawyer as well. Uh, there's this kind of impression from people who are not familiar with the law at all, who are not familiar with the legal profession at all. And this impression, they hold this impression that, Lawyers are very separated from the rest of society. Lawyers don't know what's going on. But that's just not true. I mean, they're, they're it, not, always, not yeah. always true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not always true. I mean, and, and, most, and most of the time, aside from a few exceptions, of course, but in most of the time, the human experience is mandatory. I mean, there cannot be a case without understanding the human side of what's going on. And at least from my preliminary understanding at this point, me still being in law school. But yeah, the human experience is such an important mandatory requirement for a lawyer to really to really bring his or her uh, career to the next level. Really, it's, it's because if you understand the person, if you understand your client, if you understand the group that you're advocating for, if you understand what they've gone through, that is what really sets you apart and what really helps you, well, advocate a better case and advocates much more stronger than if you didn't understand that human experience, if you just went by mechanics. And, and in terms of that, that kind of success that comes with it can, can come regardless of the level of courts that you advocate at. And in your case, with over 200 cases, many of which were litigated at the Supreme Court of Canada. That is just, wow. <laughs> I mean, just my, myself looking at that number, I'm thinking, wow, many lawyers don't even get the chance to even step one time in the Supreme Court of Canada, let alone over uh, w within 200 times. 
maybe about 100 of which were at Supreme Court. That is, you know, a rare opportunity to really just bring your litigation skills to the next level. You know, uh, what you are talking about, uh, the human dimensions of law and their importance, is also true in the academy. Um, uh, this uh, was made pretty clear to me early on in my career. Um, I sort of stumbled into it, I, you know. Uh, but, you know, in... When, when, when I started writing about language rights, there was virtually nothing in the books. In fact, there was nothing in the books. Uh, you know, I started writing about language rights in uh, the 1970s uh, before uh, all of the rumpus had uh, exploded and produced, you know, problems. And it leaked into the relationships between Otto and Quebec City and, uh, you know, I was trying to understand all this. Um, <clears throat> what I, I could I the books offered me virtually nothing. Um, what did offer me something and was really formative in my scholarship was working with the uh, language minority communities. I got to see the world through their eyes, which was a a real eye opener. You know, I had no idea what it was like, you know, to go to a hospital and not understand and not have people understand me, uh, you know, or, you know, to be at a dying bedside and not to have, you know, not, not to have people understand me or my family or, you know, to be disrespected, you know, for language reasons or I, so I, I started to see this stuff or to send your kids to a school where, you know, they don't really speak the language perfectly. I, I started to see this stuff, through the eyes of uh, the minority communities and in spending time with them. So my scholarship, my early scholarship, was really not formed out of, you know, what was in the books and reflection and theory and stuff. It was formed out of these experiences and reflecting what did they, what did they mean, you know, and how, how, how are these problems to be resolved? How do we live together? Um, and language is a very indelible thing, of course, you know, like race and, um, uh, you know, and even more so because, you know, it's really not socially constructed, right? It's, and um, so uh, it's, um, it was, it was very formative on me on the academic side. Uh, and again, you know, if we were able to expose our students more to the lived uh, realities that give rise to these uh, sort of uh, abstruse Supreme Court of Canada decisions that they read, you know, I think this would be helpful to the, you know, to their formation as uh, people, as professionals, as lawyers, and as problem solvers. Certainly, certainly. And for those of you who want a quick reminder of what uh, Professor Magnet was talking about in terms of minority language rights. Just look at Bill 101, Bill 101 in Quebec, and the reference regarding minority language education rights. These are two very, very important case cases, a set of cases rather, that really changed the course of of Canadian history and Quebec history as well. In particular, with language rights here. And again, for for our audience, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it. 
just Google it and you'll see just how important it is. That human experience, like as, as we were just talking about, is so important. And Professor Magnet perfectly summarized this in, in one of his, his own personal examples in, in the academia as well. And to expand that, cases like the Queen and Pauli, the Queen and Pauli involving, please correct me, uh, is it Métis rights or is it in, in, uh, Métis rights? Yes. So Queen and Pauli, a very important case as well for Métis rights. And the first time I learned about this case was back during my undergraduate years. Actually, I think even slightly before that when I was still in high school. So that just shows how important it is that even in courses outside of a law school setting, we're being taught that, you know, it, that that shows how historical and how important it is. And there's no grandstanding, no grand, exuberant, lavish secret behind it. It's just as simple as understanding a person's perspective. And that's what the legal profession, in my opinion, at least in my preliminary, my very preliminary understanding of it. That's what it is. Understanding human interactions and, and the human experience, what each person has gone through in their respective life uh, lives and life experiences and to me that sounds like like what you've been able to master so well in your legal practice and now in writing a constitution for an entire country that is is certainly an opportunity that is very that has very very important consequences coming up afterwards so i mean it it goes without saying you got to get it right the first time because you only have one time to do it yeah, that's interesting what you're saying, Amos. Uh, the Queen and Pauli, that's 2003, uh, and this was the first case uh, that recognized that there was a constitutionally protected Métis indigenous right to do various things that uh, took priority over, you know, general provincial power to, in Pauli's case, regulate wildlife and that sort of stuff. Um, uh you may not know that um, uh, Pauli, uh, you know, is the first, um, uh, the first, <clears throat> Pal the, the Métis were, were I, I was in the room actually when this took place in 1982, the Métis were recognized for the first time in the Constitution in 1982 um, in Section 35 of the Constitution that were recognized as one of the uh, Aboriginal peoples of Canada. Uh, the Métis, of course, had fought a rebellion uh, or two rebellions um, in the 19th century, uh, and uh, the first one resulted in the creation of the province of Manitoba. The second one was really unsuccessful. They were wiped out. Their leader was hung, and uh, some of their other leaders were imprisoned, and uh, they went underground to reemerge in Pauli. <laughs> and, but the uh, experience there, 2003, um, uh, you know, a couple of other matey cases, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, you mentioned Daniels in your opening, um, but also the Manitoba matey federation case, um, uh, were other openings for matey rights. What I wanted to say about all this is all this activity in the courts, the Pauli case, the, uh, Manitoba Meadey Federation case, and I was counsel in that uh, through the uh, initial. I put uh, some of that together and was counsel uh, through the initial stages in the trial courts until the 
two matey communities get into a little problem and, uh, you know, the community I represented withdrew. But Pauli, the Manitoba Matey Federation case, Daniels, okay, so constitutional litigation uh, resulting in three Supreme Court of Canada decisions, you know, 2003, 2013, 2016. Um, now, what's the what's the outcome of those? This is something else that I uh, learned that may interest your re- readers. Um, the Supreme Court can speak, but things don't necessarily change um, or don't change rapidly, and sometimes they don't change at all. And... Uh, it's been a real learning experience for me um, to try to think through, well, what happens, you know, even if you win, are you going to get what you want? So with the Mady cases, um, I am working on those now uh, to try to implement um, both the victories that uh, our side had in the Pauli case in 2003, a generation ago, and in Daniels, 2016, you know, four plus years ago, those cases remain uh, unimplemented. Um, There are not, you know, implemented constitutionally protected indigenous rights for Métis people to hunt, to harvest, to, you know, share in resources and all of that. And, uh, you know, now, you know, there has been progress, but, you know, you mentioned uh, in your opening remarks, sometimes things are slow. Um, so in the wake of the Daniels case, there are three self-government agreements that have been signed. Uh, but still, um, the uh, $11 billion, uh, you know, spending on indigenous peoples that we do has not been extended, for example, to the eight Métis settlements. Uh, they still don't have... Uh, they still don't have participation in the health programs, the education programs, the housing programs, uh, the other programs that are directed at the indigenous peoples. So, you know, uh, I'm working on these now, but, you know, my experience has been throughout, even after Manitoba language going back a couple of generations, uh, things don't get implemented right away and, uh, or sometimes at all. And, um, and I've seen this in other countries as well, you know, as being counsel and some stuff in, in Israel. Uh, you know, our, if we were to, you know, really extend the reach of our courses, we would be focusing on how to achieve clients' objectives, not just how to win cases, but, you know, how to achieve clients' objectives, because sometimes winning cases doesn't get you there. And that's certainly an important message that I think we should keep in mind in general. You know, it, it, again, client objectives relating all the way back to the human side of the legal profession rather than just being mechanical and winning the case. Not to say that winning the case is an important objective, but it's not the only objective. There are certainly more objectives on top of that that, that you want to do that are equally as important, if not more important, than just win, simply winning a case. It's not just winning the battle, but also winning the war, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and while that may sound like a very violent way, it may not be the best analogy to use, but I mean, it's, it's not just winning one specific uh, match. It's winning the entire series. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Not, not just winning game one of the NBA playoffs, but winning the entire 
the entire best out of best out of seven or whatever best out of uh, the series is, and then winning the finals. That's essentially what we're trying to get at here with with the objectives that we have here in mind. And the reason why I'm using the NBA analogy is at the time this is recorded, Raptors are still playing, losing <laughs> two games in the playoffs right now. So uh, things are looking kind of grim against the Boston Celtics. But um, but yeah, again. I sometimes think about it the way you've put it, you know, uh, you know, the best out of seven. But, but um, more often, um, I think about it as uh, managing problems, managing conflict um, to, uh, you know, get, uh, you know, a fairer ride along along the process. That's the way I think about it. It's man- managing conflict, uh, not to necessarily an ultimate result, but so that the conflict is, uh, you know, subdued uh, and, you know, the people you're representing uh are participating in whatever processes, you know, have given rise to the conflict, are participating in ways that are more agreeable to them. Managing conflict, as you said, uh, also another important aspect of approaching a case. But in your, as a personal, as as the, the lawyer themselves, managing the nerves the nervousness to going into court, especially the Supreme Court, that's also very important. And take us back to your first time that you stepped in front of the Supreme Court of Canada, not as a clerk, but as an advocate of the law. I can only imagine the high stakes and the intensity of the environment. The first time, so much <laughs> on the line. <laughs> what was uh, it like? I think was it was uh, it, uh, my first time in the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm... I remember what it was, but it may have been a motion. Um, At the time, we still had, uh, you would still argue your leave to appeal uh, orally. And my first time may have been uh, on one of those motions. But in any event, on one of those motions, uh, arguing for leave to appeal, (laughs) Um, just, just... uh, Justice Betts, um, uh, I was supposed to speak first. I was, you know, you know, super prepared uh, as to how to make my case, et cetera. And he said, uh, you know, Mr. Magna, I, I think we'll start with the other side. I really don't really think I need to hear your, your argument. He um, started with the other side. It didn't go very well. You know, he got very confused. The other side got very confused. And he then asked me to start after all this mess had been created. Um, so, uh yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of interesting. And on another one of these motions, um, Justice Lara Dubey, uh, you know, didn't want me to speak because I was uh, acting for an intervener. She wasn't sure that I should have speaking rights. And, um, you know, she thought about it and uh, she said, um, yeah, I, you're, you're not going to speak, Mr. Magnet. Uh, and so the case went on without me. Um, about a year later, I was at a dinner with her. And um, she was having fun poking fun at me. Uh, she was really, she's, oh, yes, Mr. Magnet, you know, I didn't let you speak, you know, I didn't let you speak. And I, I said, yeah, well, that's true, but you've made some other correct decisions. 
Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that that those are certainly some very memorable experiences. That <laughs> that that wow. <laughs> that I mean, at least you get a good, a good laugh out of it after a while. I mean, just looking back, and I mean, she didn't seem to think it was very funny. Actually, it did. <laughs> but then oh, again, boy. I didn't think it was very funny not being able to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that that really. I mean, I mm -hmm. mean, to, 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 on a more serious note, I mean, like just thinking back to not being able to speak. I mean, you do all this preparation, and then you you can't speak at all. No. It, it, I mean, to me, it it just seems like I wasted all that time, or I wasted all that preparation. And then I have my chance, and I can't even speak. Then what's the point of all the preparation? Then right, uh, so that you're ready. That's the point of it, and you're ready for anything that happens. And you know you can be sure that the unexpected is going to happen when you're in court. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And including and not any, being able to speak. For for the uh, for the Star Wars fans out there, I mean, there's one analogy that I could bring for, and it's not a Star Wars in universe analogy. It's an actual a, a real life analogy. Mark Hamill, the, the actor of Luke Skywalker, apparently when, he, when they were filming the recent uh, sequel trilogies, he said that they, the directors told him to train hard, like physical training and all that kind of stuff. And it, just so you know, physical training you know, is much more strenuous than your than at least most regular exercise regimens that you would do at home. So he would put in, put in the work, put in the time to really just hit the weights. And remember, he's not young. He, he's, he's not that young anymore. He's getting, he's getting close uh, to, to an elderly part or a retirement age. And he does all of this work, all this exercise. And then when it comes to film, I think it, was, it wasn't The Last Jedi. It was The Force Awakens. He only appears for one short scene just to push one little thing and he's like i do all of this work i was i thought there was going to be some crazy fight scene between myself and some dark sith or something but all you're telling me to do is to push one thing all that work for just one tiny little 10 second scene or something <laughs> right and not to mention he's he was the big character from the old original trilogy of star wars and to me that's what that's what kept that came to mind i mean you know, all this work, all this time, and then you don't even get a chance to talk. Or if you did get a chance to talk, it's for barely anything. It's like for 10 or 15 seconds. That that really hurts. That hurts. <laughs> I mean, mm. I mean, I mean, it takes you a while to recover from that. I, I would, I would, I would imagine. Um. Well, you know, there's this wonderful scene in uh, uh, du Temps Perdu, Marcel Proust's uh, great novel. Um, uh, where he describes um, a a uh, a tremendous conflict uh, uh, at the end of the First World War, uh, um, and the diplomats, you know, are talking forever and arguing forever. Cannot whatever the French diplomat is quiet and says absolutely nothing. Um, so you're, you're pointing to, you know, the actors only getting a couple of lines. This guy says absolutely nothing. And it goes on for days and days and days and days. Uh, and um, after, after many days, um, he delivers himself 
Proust writes, of one word. Proust doesn't tell you what it is, but he says, the room stopped. The problem changed. In fact, the problem was resolved. People looked at each other, you know, and said, yes, that's, that's correct. <laughs> and, and that was the end of the uh, diplomatic encounter, you know, in, uh, in, uh, in favor of this French diplomat. So I think, you know, good counsel should strive for this kind of heavy brevity <laughs> with that single word that resolves everything. Um, you know, I think I'm, I, I must have told you in constitutional litigation that uh, uh, when I clerked, um, the most impressive barrister of that time, and maybe even until this time, was John Robinette. And he would produce these amazingly short factums two pages, sometimes one page, you know, with two paragraphs, whatever. But they were, they were devastating. Um, and he had an incredible track record. The clerks used to say, you know, when, he, when, 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 when we had particularly difficult cases, you know, like, for example, uh, the clerks would say, you know, well, you know, the judges, you know, haven't made up their minds. They're waiting for Robinette to explain it to them. You know, this this was this was the this was the way it was, but it, it was all done with great brevity. I unfortunately was not successful in successful in persuading with silence. However, that seemed to be a little too brief. Wow! Wow! That is, and that's also a good lesson, also for for all of us. Sometimes, sometimes few words wins wins the battle. You know, uh, a person yeah. with few words can can really get the message across and if sometimes a few words is all you need you know to 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 make your point to persuade the other side and yeah to to get the results that that you want and that's that's also again a lesson that we that I think we should all learn even when, when we have a very little chance to speak that that chance make the most out of every chance and opportunity that we have and looking back over the years you've had again so many opportunities and so many successes over time. So over the past decades, the many decades that you've been practicing the law, how has the constitutional legal practice generally evolved? How does a pre-charter legal practice compare to a post-charter legal practice? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, uh, the style of argument uh, before the... Uh, charter was uh, focused uh, very, very much on the precedents and uh, what did the precedents um, require. Uh, you know, uh, in the post-charter universe, um, most charter cases are really Section 1 cases. And uh, so what Section 1 requires is, you know, a uh, very heavy dose of uh, social science and other, you know, evidence as to what, you know, might happen, you know, what's predicted to happen, what the effects are and stuff. So this kind of evidence-based, uh, you know, or this evidence contest, uh, this is not uh, something that uh, characterized the 
preacher to universe. Um, also, uh, you know, we used to talk about constitutional laws being, you know, law for the ages. You know, constitutions, you know, were not, you know, uh, like statutes to be uh, amended every year. They constitutional constitutions and constitutional decisions were decisions for the ages. I don't think we think about think that way about it anymore. We think, you know, the shelf life of a Supreme Court of Canada decision is maybe 10 years. Uh, and then, you know, it might be time to take another look at it. You know, there's been a social evolution. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's not that there's a catch up with, uh, you know, the constitutional precedents, but they interact, you know, the society, the, the constitution is a living thing. It interacts with the society, sometimes propels it, sometimes follows it, sometimes rides alongside. And um, so we think of, you know, the uh, stability of constitutional decisions as, you know, not for the ages, you know, but maybe for 10 years, maybe less. There's also been um, a tremendous quantification of uh, uh, constitutional scholarship, uh, and this is leaking into the professions. Like, we did not know, uh, you know, uh, 15 years ago, we didn't know how long constitutions lasted, right? This was a, we had no idea. Nobody had ever, you know, studied, you know, the, uh, 800 or so constitutions that there have been created since the French Revolution and, you know, quantified, well, okay, you know, what are they, how long do they last? Well, we know that now. It's about 19 years, you know. And, um, you know, people had not, you know, seriously investigated why constitutions were destroyed. You know, what, what led to their, you know, stability or what led to their destruction. Well, you know, we now, we're investigating that now, and there's all this wonderful scholarship and comparative constitutional law that, you know, enlighten us about many aspects of that. So, um, in, you know, so many constitutions are being written right at this, right at this moment. You know, well, in the pre-charter, you know, in, in the 1970s, uh, or 80s, we, we, we wouldn't have really, you know, we would have had some textual models, but we wouldn't have had, you know, the experience of living societies and what, you know, can make them, you know, more stable, uh, you know, more free. We had some grand ideas of, you know, equality, liberty, you know, fraternity, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff, freedom. But, um, you know, the actual institutions um, or elite bargains or accommodations that needed to be made uh, society by society. And, you know, we didn't really have any insight into this. So we do now. And these insights, I mean, they're imperfect because this is a new science, comparative constitutional law. But these insights now uh, are available to for constitutional argument in the courts. You know, the court, you know, if you tell a court, I can tell you, you know, and prove to you that, you know, a decision this way, you know, is going to make Canada, you know, more stable, you know, more peaceful, um, you know, wealthier. If, you know, if, if you can back that up, uh, you know, a, a court wants to, wants to know that. Um, so these uh, lessons from comparative constitutional law are getting, you know, increasingly built into constitutional argument and they're powerful 
uh, type arguments. And this uh, scholarship, you know, these this discipline of comparative constitutional law is on fire. Uh, this is really, you know, a, uh, you know, it comes late in my career, but I'm, I just find it completely and utterly fascinating and wonderful. Um, and uh, along also comes big data and, you know, the ability to, you know, precisely measure things, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's a ex- very exciting universe that you, you know, and your colleagues are going into both in the profession, in the academy, uh, et cetera. You know, that's opening up, you know, public law knowledge, public law possibilities, uh, you know, in ways that were unimaginable, lit- literally unthinkable, you know, to – uh, the generation that I started with. Certainly. It's a very exciting time to look at just the future of what Canada's constitution will offer. And now as we are approaching 40 years of since the, uh, since the, uh, the charter's enactment and really the, the patriation of Canada's constitution, that is a milestone, certainly a very quantifiably amazing milestone But there's also a qualifiable aspect to the legal practice of constitutional of of, of the Constitution. And that qualifiable aspect in in what I'm trying to say about that is really the the musical and the artistic expression of it. Now, for those of you who who are listening to this, who aren't familiar with this, you may be a bit confused. Amos, how is how is there a musical and artistic aspect of litigation? Well, let me explain it to you this way. So I remember in one particular seminar in your class, Professor, uh, again, it's, it's for those of you listening and watching, it's the Constitutional Litigation course. And Professor, you compare the preparation of a case to the preparation of a piano sonata or a sonata in general. And from time to time, even after taking that course, even across this entire summer, I'm always reminded and fascinated by that thought. Because, especially as a classical pianist myself, there are so many different parallels between a sonata and a case. And one thing that I also mentioned on a different podcast, on a friend's podcast, was that in many ways, I actually even see the law and a lot of things through the eyes of music. And sometimes I even hear it sometimes. It's a very, very interesting experience that I personally have. And especially since you quantify it as, you know, again, uh, preparing for a case being very similar to preparing for a sonata, why did you find that similarity? I I don't remember the uh, particular instance you're talking about. It's very fascinating to listen to you explain it. Uh, I have to say that. Um, I do think that uh, my experience with my research assistants uh, and possibly I have indicated this to you previously, has been that um, some of the uh, musicians who then uh, go to law school seem to have, uh, you know, tremendous powers as lawyers. They develop, you know, into superb lawyers. And I've, I've wondered about this. It's also true that theologians, um, former theologians who go to law school, uh, sometimes develop into just superior lawyers. And I've puzzled over this. Um, uh, I'm not sure that I have an answer for it, but there is something about the 
musical imagination um, that can take a uh, unformed mass of stuff and uh, make something extremely organized, concise, uh, and beautiful out of it. Um, and, you know, you certainly have an unformed mass of stuff when you're putting a case together, that's for sure. You know, you've got the, you know, universe of evidence to go look for and the universe of legal argument to wrap it around. And, uh, you know, you have to put in a way that is agreeable and persuasive, uh, you know, as rhetoric and uh, argument. And um, so I've often wondered if, you know, maybe the musicians don't have uh, a leg up on that process that, you know, allows them to take this mass of unorganized mess, you know, and uh, reduce it to the essential points, shape it into something beautiful and persuade with it. Um, but I'm not sure I could do any better than that uh, because uh, as a violist, you, you mentioned, I'm absolutely horrible. And, you know, I had, I have listened to your piano playing, which is beautiful. And, oh, thank uh, you. Thank you very much. And just wonderful. And I, you know, can only, you know, admire it from a distance. Well, I mean, thank you very much, uh, Professor, uh, for the kind words. Um, uh, as you, as yes, as as you said, a, a violist, uh, and having taken viola lessons in recent years, what have you found that was beneficial from your viola lessons that you managed to bring into your own legal practice and to your overall professional pursuits? Well, uh, the most important thing was uh, not not to not to continue trying to, to get any better. It's something I was not destined to be able to do. There was no point, you know, banging my head against that particular wall. I love the viola. It's a, a beautiful instrument. I love its deep tones. I have a particularly beautiful instrument myself, and you know, I wish that I could. You know, to me, and, I, and I'm mystified, you know, and amazed and, you know, uh, grateful for, you know, what, you know, some of, you know, and people here in Ottawa, like Pincus, uh, who was here, you know, are able to do with that instrument. I just think it's uh, terrific. Um, but I'd like to, I, I, I find it helpful to encourage my students not to worry about you know, speaking uh, and not, you know, hearing anything that makes particular sense come out of their mouth, you know, as they're trying to learn uh, that, you know, it's not easy to develop uh, the particular skills that go into being a litigator uh, or an academic or in anything, you know, and it takes, you know, hard work and, you know, practice and uh, diligence and a little bit of talent would be helpful in the case of the viola, which I don't have. And, um, uh, you know, but I, I, I like to use that analogy with my students to say, you know, okay, I'm asking you a question, you know, and if you flub all over the place, don't worry about it. You know, that's, you're just, this is just the process of learning. Let me help you with it. I'll show you where to, you know, do it in the same way that a viola teacher would show you, you know, how to stand, you know, how to hold the instrument, you know, where to get your thumb on the bow. Let me, let me help you with these things. And then, you know, uh, hopefully you're going to develop into a, you know, world-class, you know, uh, litigation performer. So I, I like, I like those analogies. I think they're helpful. They certainly are. And 
there's there's this unfortunately in Canada and the U.S. From my personal experience, at least, there's not a lot of recognition for artistic expression and musical expression in terms of the mainstream culture, which is very different from Europe. You know, in Europe, musical and artistic expression is strongly encouraged and very, very much recognized. A perfect example, actually many perfect examples, would be the conservatories in Vienna, conservatories in Germany, and the Moscow Conservatory. You know, their, their ability to, to teach the musical and artistic expression to its students really transcends even the musical realm. Um, a lot of those skills can really be transferred into not just the legal profession, but also the prof- any profession in general. Because, as you said, uh, pr- Professor, what you found was that we're able to make, to organize a coherent structure out of a, a, a certain mass of near chaos in, in many ways. For me, the way how I would describe that is that, for example, as a piano, you have all 88 keys. And then they're not going to play, play themselves. You have to play them with only 10 fingers, two hands. But it's up to you to make a coherent piece out of it and a coherent musical expression out of it. And that requires training of, of, of a lot. Now, of course, there are a lot of people who, who self-teach themselves piano, and they do get decently far enough. But if you want to take it to a very, very high level of, of artistic and musical expression, you need to have formal training. You need to have formal training, just like how in, how in the legal profession you must have, well, formal training here in law school. You go to law school, then you have the articling process, and then you have the licensing process, and then you, you practice. It's a very practical thing. Just like in the law, music is a very practical pursuit practical in the sense that it's not just learning by the books you got to actually use your hands and get your it's very hands-on and for me sadly in my personal experience canada and the u.s at least in a lot of uh job searches or a lot or not a lot but a good number of employers don't seem to have as strong of a recognition for musical and artistic expression. It's one of those soft skills that I find that it's it's mostly ignored in, in a lot of senses. And and my answer to that is that that that's a mistake that a lot of employers are doing because as you said professor, there are so many things that a person with a musical and artistic uh, background can do that can really change the way how not just the cases is is argued but also how a certain job is is completed, how a certain project is completed, how even a team can work together in that sense. I mean, even and this goes back to, you know, ensemble or orchestral performances. You work, you're very much a team player at that point. Whether you're a pianist who's playing a piano concerto or you're first violin or second violin concert master or, or, or whatever instrument that you play in the orchestra, you're very, very much a team player. Everyone has to work in synergy or, 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 um, synchronization otherwise the whole piece falls apart and that's something that I, I i just hope that more of it is being recognized here in canada and the u.s because in europe it's very much recognized but in canada the u.s it, it, it doesn't seem to have that kind of kind of recognition and that's something that i think is is very unfortunate here with the professional culture here in canada i have two reactions to the very interesting points you're making 
Um, first, uh, for myself, like I've hired, um, I don't know, 125 or 150, you know, junior lawyers and uh, research assistants. Um, um, uh, there was a time, and 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 still <laughs> to a certain extent, where uh, having a musical background was a a really important plus, you know, in my consideration of somebody for the reasons I told you. You know, I I, I was aware that the f- former musicians tended, you know, more often than to, than not to just, you know, be terrific lawyers or. So I, <clears throat> I'm not sure if how many of people like me there are <laughs> with that with that uh, you know tropism towards hiring uh, musicians or artists, uh, but you know I, I certainly have it. Um, and secondly, you know, you were talking about training uh, and teaching, and I'm sure you're aware that uh, some musical teachers. Auer, for example, Professor Auer, uh, a violin teacher, you know, tend to produce an, an incredible number of the greatest violinists ever. Like, you know, Heifetz, uh, you know, you know, was it was an hour student, but but so many uh, of the great, you know, uh, violinists were our students, and I, I've read Auer's books, wondering. You know, what could I learn from them as a teacher? What 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 magic did that guy have that he, you know, could produce? Was it, was it just, you know, you know, that he had a reputation and, you know, these people who would have succeeded otherwise came to him and he was really inconsequential? Or, you know, what was I, I you know, in reading his books, you know, on uh, violin technique and violin uh, pedagogy and that sort of stuff, I really was not able to learn anything. It remains a mystery to me what it was that he could have produced, you know, Zimbalist. And I mean, he just, you know, uh, I, I I don't know. So, I mean, my I'm just commenting on what you said because you went into that. Um, uh, I wish that we knew more. I wish I knew more about you know what it is that the great teachers, or at least the the teachers who are great by the measurement of you know the greatness of their students, you know what it was that they did. I mean, I myself, you know, uh, my my biggest ambition uh, in life now is to be useful, to be helpful to my students, to, you know, to help them achieve what they, you know, can achieve and, and, and more, right? That's, you know, uh, and every time I, I learn of, you know, another one of my students who's successful, you know, I'm just thrilled, you know, I, I just, you know, this is to me absolutely wonderful, but I wish I understood better, you know, what, the teaching magic is, you know, that allows you to be, you know, uh, useful uh, and successful within those parameters. For my personal experience and my mom being a piano teacher and my first piano teacher for many, many years, I can say that the way how how my mom would respond would be there are two things, technique and musicality. Technique is very straightforward. You know, you teach the, teach the student the scales, the arpeggios, the trills, the tremolos, 
the, the dominant sevens, the diminished sevens, all of that. Technique is important, but it can only get you so far. Musicality is something that can only be taught to a certain extent because musicality is what separates a good musician from a great musician. And the way how I would describe musicality, now every musician would describe musicality in a very different way, but how I would describe musicality is that it is expressing the pieces, the musical pieces' soul. It is expressing what the composer of that piece, especially that classical piece, what that composer intended. And a lot of that can be attributed to the philosophies that that composer has written down. In your case, you've, you've read a, a lot of, uh, of hours uh, books on violin technique. Well, C.P.E. Bach, one of the sons of J.S. Bach, wrote the essay on the true art of, of, of keyboard playing. And I read a part of that. Carleton University actually, actually has, a, has a physical physical copy of this, and I remember taking really? it. And really? Yes, yes. It, and it's translated into English, too, so from the original German. So... Uh, I remember reading it and doing it as one of my research projects back in my undergrad when I was taking a music course, one of, one of my uh, uh, several music courses back at Carleton. There, there's a certain philosophy that you want to to express when you're when you're uh, performing the piece, and of course the Baroque, the classical, the Romantic, the neo-Romantic the early 20th century, the modern, and the contemporary. These are all very different styles and different philosophies. Even the technique in, in, in classical pianism in the classical era is very different from pianism in the modern era, actually, in today's era, actually, because even the fingering of that note, so that the one, two, three, four, five that a person might see on a, on a person's piece, well, one is the thumb, two is, is, the, uh, is the pointing finger, uh, three is the middle finger. Fourth is the ring finger, and the uh, and five is is the uh, the last the pinky finger. These are these are different in some cases back then compared to now, which also shows just the difference on how a piece can be approached. And I also heard somewhere that to understand a certain piece, to understand how to how to be to be musically correct. At a certain piece, you had to understand where the composer is coming from. So, for example, Frederick Chopin. To understand his his pieces, to truly express his pieces, you had to understand where he came from. He had tuberculosis for most of his life. He lived a life of tragedy. He was always, or not always, but most of the time, he was a very sick person. You know, tuberculosis back then was was a death sentence. Not until we discovered antibiotics. And there's always a certain kind of sorrow because of all that. There's always a certain kind of sorrow that you see, that you hear, rather, in his piece. So as you're expressing the piece, even the grand pieces, you have to, to, to evoke a certain kind of sadness with that. He's very lyrical in this piece. He, I mean, that's why he's called the poet of the piano, aside from composing primarily for, or only for the piano. Yes, he, he's very poetic, but that poeticism has a bit of a sorrow towards it. Now, Franz Liszt, on the other hand, an extroverted person, basically I would even call the Michael Jackson of the 1800s back then. He was one of the most, he was a, an extremely famous pian pianist, and for good reason. He pushed the boundary of 
pianism. He he pushed the ability, what was possible, what was thought was possible back then with the pieces. And you see that in just some of his most incredibly difficult pieces of all time, basically. And to understand that piece, you had to understand where he's coming from. And the good thing about Liszt is that he actually writes a lot of that in letters to other composers and his own personal writings. And he, for, for many, many years before he became a full-time composer, he, he regularly composed, uh, composed and performed those pieces very well. So, so to understand that, you also, you ha- again, understand his context. And for me, that context was he was living a, a pretty happy life. You know, he had quite, quite, quite uh, a, a wealthy experience overall when it comes to performing. He was well known. On top of that, he always wanted to explore the very expressive and emotional extremes between absolute sorrow or absolute joy. There's one piece uh, that I, it just the name just left me right now, but what it does evoke is heaven and hell, two literal opposites. But in with the piano, you have to express both extremes contrasting extremes sometimes even as as quick as just two measures one measure would be would be heaven another measure would be hell and that's just the sort of musicality that i that i would express it it's not a perfect uh explanation but you know it's an explanation it's my personal experience from when i'm i'm looking at a piece and just looking at what the composers intend that's how I, w- I would describe it. You know, that, I mean, it's a very long way for me to describe musicality and, and, and just what allows the musician to really understand the, the story beyond the score, the story beyond the notes. And um, yeah, this is my very long rambly way of, yeah, <laughs> of explaining it. But it's it. <laughs> very fascinating to listen to you uh, discourse on this, Amos. Uh, you know, you're a superb pianist and... Uh, it's a real pleasure to, uh, you know, hear you expound uh, a theory of uh, musicality for sure. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Um, again, it's just my own personal ex- explanation. It's not the best explanation. And different musicians would have different uh, understandings of it. But that's generally how I would understand it. And general, at least a general sense, what a lot of musicians, classical musicians, would, under- would understand it. Uh, as well. And the times have changed. You know, music has changed. The genres have changed because society is changing. Society having changed, I think it's pretty obvious where I'm going with this. Well, the pandemic has changed everything. Well, with the pandemic changing everything, even the legal practice has changed and career opportunities have changed a lot as well. And there's just not a lot to be happy about in general with what society is going. I mean, talking about sorrow just a few minutes ago, a lot of people are in a bad place right now. And then a lot of law students feel uncertain about the future. And as I begin to conclude this, uh, this episode, what is your advice to law students that are traversing this very difficult time of the pandemic? What is your advice to them, you know, in terms of keeping their head up and looking towards maybe a better future and, having their career back on their feet. What's your advice to them? Uh, I know what, uh, what, what it's essential uh, to do, which is to develop yourself, 
um, you're in an extraordinary place. The, the University of Ottawa Law Faculty is, is really an extraordinary place. Like the University of Ottawa, what in the world rankings is 145th, but it's law school is a special, brilliant place, and you are really lucky to be part of it, and we are lucky to be part of you, let me tell you. So you, uh, you know, should take this opportunity to develop yourself because it won't come around again. You know, you can build capability, you can build skill, and you can do what you want, and you can reach for the stars, and you can achieve them. Um, so... Uh, you know, yeah, we are in a difficult time, and um, yes, we are, you know, all suffering in, you know, our own little ways, uh, and, you know, we are suffering as a society, but this pandemic is not going to last forever, and uh, you are going to uh, have a long career, you know, take this time, you know, and make what you can out of it. You know, develop skill. You have so many brilliant people around you. You know, uh, in the student body. You know, in the faculty. Uh, some really tremendous administrative services. You know, yeah, it's not what it could have been had there been no pandemic. But there is a pandemic. You know, all right. Well, you get one life. You don't get to go around again. So, you know, this is you know your time. You know, in your law faculty. Uh, you know, we, you know, on the faculty will do, you know, we will lift heaven and earth for you as we're able and take advantage of it. Don't let it pass. You know, it's uh, terrific. You know, in our faculty, we, 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 we weren't always this strong, but we are really strong now. And there is so much going on. Uh, there are so many knowledges expanding on so many fronts. You know, we are making a difference in so many, you know, uh, different parts of our society and around the world, be part of it, develop yourself, you know, don't let a moment go by, uh, enjoy yourself. And, uh, you know, so great that you invited me to be here, you know, to share with you, Amos, I really appreciate it. And uh, I really look forward to working with our students this year. And uh, however I can be helpful, please call on me. And thank you so much, Professor, for coming on to the show. We have learned so much over the past hour and a half or so. We, I mean, this was going to be very inspirational for all the students, and not just the students, but also for the current generation and next generation of lawyers and legal professionals. And once again, thank you so much for taking your time to come on to the show. And thank you also to our audience for tuning in to this episode of The Law School Show. Once again, Professor Joseph Magnet was my guest on this episode. I will leave a link in the description of this episode to his website, in which you can learn more about his experience, his books, as well as the courses that he's teaching as well, and many other things as well on top of that. Once again, thank you for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Take care. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice 
right to your earbuds. Catch it all here next time on The Law School Show.